when we think about this victory and the importance of it in terms of the kingdom of Israel and what it meant to the kingdom of Israel at the time, it, it ought to help us to understand a little bit more about what Elijah might be thinking. In 1 Kings 18, verse 36, remember they, they assembled on Mount Carmel and they had the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Astaroth and they assembled everybody together and the showdown was, okay, who's God? Who's the one to, uh, who is actually providing the rain for the crops? Who is the one who is actually sustaining us? And who ought we to believe? And uh, remember, uh, Elijah asking them, how long shall you halt between two opinions? And then we recognize in verse 36, go ahead and read in verse 36 in 1 Kings 18. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their, their, back, excuse me, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. I think if I remember correctly, the amount of uh, prophets that were there were up in the 500s, if not more. I think... Uh, close to that, especially if you count uh, the prophets of Astaroth. Uh, huge victory for God's people. And, and, and when we consider this and think about all this time that the other prophets put into what they did and the focus they put into what they did that came to nothing, and then what Elijah did in one prayer brought down the, the showing of God, the God making it clear to everybody what was happening. I think sometimes when we read these passages, we think about, wow, we're, we're so impressed by that. But what does Elijah do directly after? In chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave 
and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maolah you will anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill." Think about this and think about what is happening here. One of the things that we want to look at over the next few weeks is the, the aspects of salvation. And I think it's important when we look at these that we're not just simply uh, putting them out there topically. And we can do that, and it's useful. But I'd like for us, at least for this lesson, to look at this maybe in a different angle than we would typically look at a lesson about hearing and believing. What happens when God's faithful face distress, discouragement, problems? What happens when we face a brick wall? And how do we react to that? The way that we are faithful, right? The ultimate faith that God is looking at is not necessarily the faith that we start with, is it? And one of the things we want to appreciate about this lesson is that God helps us through difficult times so that we can properly listen to Him, so that we can understand more about what He has to say. And the only way that will work is if we're willing to go along with what He wants. The only way that will work is if we are willing and able to truly listen to Him and then act upon that truth whereby we can have the faith that God wants us to have. What's going on here? First of all, we see a retreat in the first three verses. And my question here, you know, Elijah's victory rings hollow at the threats of Jezebel. It doesn't seem like he is focusing completely on the victory, but he's concerned for his life. Was he hoping for a mass change in the kingdom of Israel? Was he hoping that this event would turn things around and that finally maybe Israel, the northern kingdom, would be faithful to, to Jehovah? Maybe he was looking for that. 
He may well have hoped for that mass change, but Jezebel's threat, as empty and hollow as it is, nevertheless seems to greatly intimidate and trouble him, and so he runs for his life. You know, many times we face retreat. You think about the disciples, what were they told? When they were going through towns and they were told, whatever town doesn't receive you, dust your feet off, you know, kick the dust of your feet upon them as a testimony to them and move on. That retreat was not failure, was it, on their part? And I would suggest that what Elijah is doing here in itself is not failure. Because he just had this great victory with God. And let's recognize that he's human, just like we're human. There are times when we face times of distress and discouragement. And there are some times where we may need to retreat and regroup. God does not rebuke Elijah for this retreat. In fact, he sustains him and helps him. He gets to a point where he's saying, it's enough. <laughs> this, is, this is it. He says, I'm no better than my father's. And, and this is just the worst that it can get. And so under that tree, uh, my translation says broom tree, others say juniper tree, he, he, he feels that his mission has failed. And his cry to God ought to sound familiar to anyone who is pushed to that point where we feel like, listen, you know, it feels like I'm the only one that's doing the right thing here. It feels like I'm the only one that, that is actually pushing for serving God. But God's care begins almost immediately. I would suggest that this could prove that Elijah's despair is not sin. Does God give direct supernatural help to those who are not faithful? Does he help sustain people who are allied against him? I think he blesses people providentially that way. But this is direct supernatural help. And even if he directly, supernaturally helps people, we recognize in the Bible many good people of faith in the Scriptures despair in moments such as this. You think about Moses, think about Job, and you think about Jesus. We even read about him in the garden this morning. If we think, brothers and sisters, if we think that despair is sin, then our Savior was not sinless. He got to the point in that garden where he's saying, listen, anything else, any other possibility, nevertheless. And that's the distinguishing factor. And that's why I say that despair by itself is not sin. God asked Elijah why he came to this place. And he lists out a number of things that have occurred, even in the face of God's great victory. He believes that he alone stands for the Lord, that no one else is doing so. In his perspective, all is lost, and the great change that possibility he might have hoped to see will not occur. And we know through Bible history that it won't, that the kingdom of Israel will never be faithful to God. And so what does all this mean? Well, he, he sustains him. He gives him food. He gives him help. And then, I believe, he begins to teach him. In verse 11, he tells him to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. 
And we see these different things happening. The Lord passed by. And the wind tears into the mountain. But we recognize from the text, the Lord is not in the wind. The Lord's not present there. That's not where he is. The Lord, uh, an earthquake shakes the mountain, but the Lord's not in the earthquake. A fire comes by. Some scholars have suggested maybe this was a lightning strike, but the Lord is not in the fire. All these amazing big events of nature that man is so quick to attribute to, oh, the God of that must be in there. The God of fire must have caused that. The God of, of the earth must have done that. The God of wind must have done that. And that's what Elijah had been fighting against. That's what Elijah had been combating, wasn't it? But this still, small voice follows afterward. And, and I would suggest that that is representative of the true work of God. Sometimes God's work is huge and life-changing. Sometimes in the Bible we see the Red Sea parting. We see uh, huge events happening in the history of the nation of Israel. We have this great victory at Mount Carmel, but other times God's power and His work is quiet and unassuming. Almost to the point that you're going to miss it if you're not looking for it. In either case, God's work is powerful and effective, and we must believe that. There's a note of application here. We're going to have some more application later on. But, you know, the quiet, determined, and focused work of a local congregation of saints, we need to appreciate that. We might not have Mount Carmel events all the time, if ever. We might not have big events where it seems like good things can happen. We hope for those. But most of this is the steady, consistent work that we have uh, to do that God has given us. And we have to be content to do our part and do it, uh, do it well and to be responsible with what God has given us. And then we let God work. When Elijah heard it, he uh, covered his face with his mantle, maybe in an effort to protect himself from beholding the face of God. But starting in verse 15, we go from the point where I believe what God is telling Elijah here is that just because this doesn't work out in the way that you want it to, doesn't mean that things are lost. I think that's what he's teaching him. Then he begins to command him, go and return. And you know, this is the model that even people in the world recognize that, that will help with things such as depression and anxiety and drug abuse and drug addiction, things like that. They note that what you need is to kind of take some time and recharge your batteries and then refocus yourself and then go back out there and have more of a discipline and pattern for your life. I mean, that's generally what I find that's happening The people uh, at the Pines are doing for the clients over there. And so it's interesting that the world arrives, you know, we get back to this point where, where the world arrives on conclusions that the Bible can already tell us. How great is that? So he tells him to go and return. He's been given food and rest, and now he's tasked with work to do. Hazael is the wind, Jehu is the fire, and Elisha will be the still small voice. I want us to note everything that transpires after this in terms of the work of Elijah and Elisha in comparison to the victory on Mount Carmel, I would say are relatively, someone call them small and weak, just small events, small miracles. They're nonetheless impressive and amazing. But you know what's interesting? These events after Mount Carmel 
are generally what the New Testament continues to refer to and what the Bible continues to refer to. Every time we see in the New Testament Elijah or Elisha being mentioned, that, you know, for example, in Luke 4, he's talking about in the days of Elijah, the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. So that's a big event. But he says, but to none of them was Elijah sent except for Zarephath uh, in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Again, in comparison, are those what the world would think of as massive victories? I would say no. In Malachi 4 and 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Uh, Jesus talking about John the Baptist in Matthew eleven fourteen. If you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Uh, mentions Elijah again in Matthew 17. Uh, Romans 11 and verse 2 mentions this, this, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with, with, pleads with God against Israel. And then James 5 and verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain in the land for three years and six months. Let's just recognize that this small, quiet work is good and it's just. It's things that, that we need to appreciate. And thanks to God, this work robs Elijah of wallowing in his despair. It takes away any possibility that Elijah has of saying, well, you know, it's enough. And just continuing in that unhealthy thought process. He tells him and submits to him that he is not alone. He says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I want to really question, why didn't God tell Elijah this in the first place? Why didn't he, God just stop him in the first place? Listen, you're not alone. Stop whining and get back to work. God didn't do that. God says, you, you take some time and recharge yourself. Hey, here's some, some let, me, let me show you something about who I am and what I do. And here's some work for you to do. Oh, and by the way, you're not alone. That's how I read this. Maybe he didn't tell him initially this because in order for Elijah to truly believe what he was to say to him, that Elijah had to be in a mindset where he could truly listen to it. We have people in the world that don't want the word of God, right? We have people that are hostile against this word. And because of their hostility, it's just, it's not always the same reason, right? You have some people that don't want to listen to this because, you know, maybe they're atheists or agnostics and they just view it as a negative book and they just don't want anything to do with it. Some people will say, well, I believe in God, but this Bible doesn't tell me who he is. You know, so they have this sense where, where something a little different is going on there. Let's appreciate that it's not just a situation where everyone who doesn't read this book is just completely hopeless. And I know, I know we don't believe that. I know we don't think that. But we need to be careful that we're not just sort of lumping all the people who don't want to read this book, who don't want to listen, in the same place. Uh, just a few things of application as we think about this uh, and, and our thoughts will be closed First of all, don't let fear and distress halt your work in Christ. 
Don't let discouragement, don't let a, a, a disappointing event, don't let that stop you. And I think that's an encouragement that we need to take from this. What will we do in a similar situation? What do we do now when we achieve a, a major victory and then immediately face a sudden setback? You go back to Jeremiah 12 and verse 1. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, yet let me talk about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, you have taken, they've taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me, and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, and prepare them for the day of slaughter. You notice how Jeremiah in that passage, he initially takes issue with God with the situation. This does not look just. This does not look right. But nevertheless, again, I think it gets back in its core to Jesus, where Jesus is saying, I don't want to go through this. And if there's any alternative, let's take it. But nevertheless, your will be done. That's what helps us. That helps us to, to not stay in those thought processes. This moment only would have become sin, I would suggest, if Elijah had refused God's sustenance, God's message, or God's commands. He is never rebuked out of his, uh, for his despair. He's only helped out of it. And so when we despair, don't think it to be sin unless we are purposefully wallowing in our suffering. If we do not, are not willing to get past the thought of how terrible things are, then yes, I think you can get to a point where we, we are in sin. But if we listen to God and we understand where he's coming from, we don't need to refuse his sustenance, which I would say in our application is the scriptures. His message, the gospel, or his commands, the way that we are to live as Christians. And so we appreciate that and we see that. But we need to listen to God. We need to hear him. And we need to be ready to listen to him. We have many who don't want to read or study their Bibles, and they, I'll tell you right now, they believe the lie that the world tells us about our inability to properly understand the Scripture. And I, I may be wrong, brothers and sisters, but I think that's generally what I find at the Pines more often than not. Is it's not necessarily that these fellows uh, you know, don't want to be saved or don't want to have their life right, but it's that they don't want to actually sit down and read. And they're having the world tell them that they can't do it, that it's impossible for them to do it. So it's important for us, while we're teaching people, to talk to people, you know, that, that this is the world gatekeeping people, you know, deluding people into thinking that they can't truly listen to God. We need to be the ones that are saying to, for them to stop listening to the world and think critically and know that they have a mind, that they've been given by God to be able to reason in Luke eleven fifty two, Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in you hindered. We're not the keepers of knowledge that are just trying to keep it away and keep it to ourselves, right? We want to share it with the world. And for us to properly share this with the world, we need to recognize some things. You know, many people will seek a different path to listen to God, and we know they're never going to hear him that way. And we need to read and study the Bible in order to know the mind of God. And we then have the responsibility of teaching that message to others. But we do have some in the world that are beset with addictions, with depression, with anxiety. 
And I think we need to get to the point where we recognize that sometimes reading the Bible, at least initially, will not do any good for them. And there needs to be an instance where they are molded and encouraged to get past some of these hang-ups, like as any sickness, so that their mind is righted and so that they can read the Bible and benefit from it and understand from it. Remember, God didn't tell Elijah about the 7,000 until after he had rested and taken comfort and had been reminded about the true priority of the work of God. So listening is not just about, well, hey, here, just, just read the Bible. It's not all the time that. You know, a lot of people, that'll work. But sometimes we have to be able and willing to listen. Sometimes we have to get to a point. I mean, there was a lady that, that told me one time that, you know, I just had suffered a major tragedy. And she, she said at the time, I just don't know that the Bible has the answers for me. And, you know, I, 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 can, I can say that and I can, I can talk about that in that way, but, you know, she was under a whole lot of grief at the time. And I hope that that turned around. I hope that she got past that grief. We've got to deal with the big things of life and with the distresses of life to push through that so that we can listen to God. When God has given you work to do, well, we need to, uh, sorry, not, not up to date with my PowerPoint here. When God has given us work to do, we need to believe him. And we need to do it to the best of our ability. Again, if God had done all this for Elijah and just continued to say, oh, I'm the only one left and just continued on with that, yeah, I, I think <laughs> Elijah would be judged unfaithful by God at that point. But when God gives us work to do, we go and we do it. We can call upon others who can learn from us or who we can learn from to help us in the work of God. Uh, turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. One thing that will help motivate us as we kind of wrap our thoughts up here, one thing that will help motivate us in our work together as Christians and our work individually, of course, is the fact that there is a, there is a time here. There's a time coming when all this is going to end, when all this is going to stop. And you think about it, only God knows that time. And there's a timer going off somewhere, though, right, uh, in some ways. And uh, we need to be reminded of the immediacy of that. Uh, Matthew 12 and verse 4. And think about the context of what Jesus is saying. We don't have time to go into all that. But Matthew 12, verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and the smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust." the gentleness of Jesus in doing the work that God has given him to do. And this is balanced, isn't it, right? Till he sends forth justice to victory. That's the time angle, isn't it? Many people are happy to know that he is a gentle and loving king, but they don't want to hear that he is a holy king of justice. 
And regardless of what we've said or talked about in terms of Elijah and whether it was sin or not that he retreated or what that happens there, we can't use Elijah as an excuse for our lack of action. When Elijah was commanded, he went. And when we're commanded, we need to go. That's where we are. That's the situation we're in. And so let's appreciate all this. Let's appreciate that God has given us a word to listen to. And we need to be prepared to listen to it. We need to prepare ourselves to listen to it. And then, on faith, we act upon the commands and the statutes of those lessons. Are you a Christian this morning? If you're not, we encourage you to think about that. We'd be glad to help you with that. There's only one life that we have to live on this earth. And this is the only opportunity we have to live it. And so this should be a stepping stone to eternity. God can help us in our distresses, in our problems. God can guide us through those things if we listen to him and if we believe and obey. Will you do that this morning? Please respond to the gospel while we stand and sing.